So last week was my birthday on Sunday, and I had a party crasher. I had a party crasher. This right here is Alex Jones. You know, Sean's our giant ginger uh, lead sometimes, plays, plays guitar. You know, Sean's a great guy. Uh, he and Kara had Alice on my birthday. How dare they? But so, so me and Alice, we're like, we're like buddies now. We're like in cahoots together. All right. Well, welcome to Elman if you're new. <laughs> if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some notes and questions go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about. If you have a smartphone, you don't have to shut it off and put it on silent. You don't want to be that guy in the middle of a church service like, who's that? Hello? Dude, seriously, I did a wedding once, and there was someone in the front row, and their phone went off in the middle of the wedding, like, yeah, yeah, I'm at a wedding, yeah. I'm like, don't be that guy. Really, it's that lady, but don't be that lady. Okay. So anyway, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Uh, click on More and then Events in Uversion. You will get the sermon notes, the questions, the verses, and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me, reading of God's Word. It says, Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, and it says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people uh, who understand who you are and what you have done in our lives, that we live in the power of your grace and the goodness of your grace, that we would understand that so lives that we live fully reflect who you are and what you have done. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in the book of Acts. This is week 25. Uh, we have about 10 weeks left before we hit our breaking point, which is the halfway point through the book of Acts. I do not at this point even know when we're going to do the second half. It could be five years from now, but we will do it. I, I keep trying to work out a place to do it, but it keeps, every time I start, you know, putting it, it ends up being longer than I think it's going to be. So someone goes, why don't you just finish the whole book? And I said, because we'd be in it for another year and a half like Genesis. So we're just, and people are like, how much longer are we in Genesis? So I tried to... Anyway, I got, I got like almost three quarters of a year in the first half of it, so I don't know what's going to happen in the rest of it. Anyway, uh, suffice to say, if you missed any of it, uh, you can go back and listen to it online, ourelement.org. You only have about 24 hours worth, so no sleep till Brooklyn, and you can, you can listen to it all and, and make it. I'm not today even going to recap what we talked about before because I've got too much to get through. Today we're looking at Jesus' conversion of a guy named Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Christian. And notice I did not say that Paul found Jesus, because that is not how it works. We are the ones who are lost. It is God who finds us. The reason we feel like we found Jesus is we kind of open our hearts to him in a way. How it really works, though, is that we're at rock bottom. We have no way out. Jesus signs his life into our hearts and into our souls, and we jump on it, and we're clinging to it, not realizing that Jesus is the one who sought us and is clinging to us from the very beginning. It's why we say things like, I found Jesus, because that's what it's felt like, but really he found us, because he's never lost. We're the ones who are lost. Now, outside of the crucifixion of Jesus, we have more information in the New Testament about Paul, Saul, Paul's conversion than any other historical event. Now, you ask, why is that? Well, don't take this the wrong way and think I'm a heretic, but I'm going to quote Tim Keller here, and he says, there's a sense in which, in in one respect, Christ is not a good example for us. Let me finish, okay? He says, Christ never had to become a Christian. Jesus was always the Son of God. 
And that is not really true for any of us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you became a Christian. I know there's some people who say, I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. You're born a baby. Okay? You're born a baby. <laughs> We become a Christian because we follow Jesus. And this is why I think in the scriptures you have a great model of what it means to follow Jesus by looking at the Apostle Paul. Uh, the book of Acts puts Paul in front and center right in front of you that, so that nobody can miss what Jesus is doing in his life and what God is saying. Paul even knows this. Paul later, after he's a Christian, writes this in 1 Timothy 1.16. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul realizes that him and his conversion in his life, it was an example. You know, Keller says that this is the timelessness of Christianity, that Paul's conversion story can still speak to us today. And as we get into this, you're going to see sometimes I'll say Saul, sometimes I'll say Paul. The names are interchangeable because Saul becomes Paul, so don't judge me whatever way I say it. It's like you say tomato and I say tomato, whatever, okay? (laughs) Paul lives 2,000 years ago, completely different culture in a world than we live today, yet his conversion is still important to look at because of the uniqueness of it, but also the uniqueness of ours. There are some essential features that every single one of us will share in our conversion to follow Jesus. That's the timelessness of Christianity. And in spite of all the difference of when and where and how Jesus reveals himself to us, there is still a sameness in this. There's certain there's certain sameness that every single conversion shares because we all became a Christian at some point if you follow Jesus. Now, some conversions are very dramatic, like you'll see in the Apostle Paul's life. Some are very slow. My brother's process was very, very slow. Some happen really later in life. You might know a few of those. Uh, some happen really young as, as small children. You'll see some of those around here like sometimes i wish i was like one of these kids who's like six or seven i love jesus because i don't think i would have done half the garbage i did if i would have just been maybe you relate maybe not i don't know uh, but we all eventually have some of the same features which we'll look at so open your bibles to acts chapter 9 this is how paul becomes a christian acts chapter 9 we're going to start in verse 1 so we're at today it says this But Saul, that's Paul, in case you missed it, okay, Saul, Paul, Saul, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so we found any belonging to the way, and the way was the name for Christianity before it was Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's how chapter 9 starts, just like that. Saul was originally a brilliant rabbinical scholar. Many people say that if Paul had never been converted to Christianity, he would have become one of the greatest Jewish rabbis and scholars in history. He would have stood beside people like Hillel or Moses, people like that. But Saul didn't become one of those. Saul gave up everything in his life to follow Jesus. And he starts off hating Christianity. He thought Christianity was blasphemy and he needed to go out and stop it. It's destroying the Jewish faith. So he literally goes out and he hunts down Christians, drags them out of their homes, throwing them into prison, and in some cases, like Stephen, also executing them. And I dealt with Stephen a few weeks ago. We're not going to rehash it today. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, chapter 9 comes into play. Saul has now gotten the right to go into Damascus and root through the city looking for Christians. It says, he is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, up to this point, who has Saul been persecuting? 
Christians. I know it's, in, it's church, you want to see Jesus, but the answer there was Christians. That's, that's who he's going after. But when, he, when Jesus talks to him, who does Jesus say Saul's been going after? Jesus. He says me, not me, but Jesus. That, that's who he's, he's going after. Now, how can that be? That's because Jesus so identifies with his children, so identifies with his bride, that when people go after them, they're going after him. It's like if you attack my wife, you are attacking me, and I will bury you. If you attack my family, you are attacking me. Jesus' message is, they are my people. They are my church. Verse 5, and he, Paul, said, who are you? And he, Jesus, said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing, so he is struck blind. So they led him by the hand, this is like a child, and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Paul is helpless, just like the people he's been persecuting. Uh, he, he is blind. His life and theology, they are now shattered. He is led into the city of Damascus, where he spends three days and three nights in blindness, like his heart and his soul was before Jesus saves him. He doesn't eat or drink anything. Verse 10, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. That's always a good response. Okay? If God shows up and calls your name, be like, Here I am. What do you need? Perfect. Verse 11, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, not that Judas, different Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, how do you think Ananias feels about Saul, Paul? doesn't like, he's like, he's here to kill me. Why would I go and do that? But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many, many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He essentially says, good for binding him. Let's just leave him that way. <laughs> that we'd all be better off. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, and I love this, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like, you're going to be able to see again. Don't kill me. It's great. It's great. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized so he believes in Jesus and taking food he was strengthened. What you see is Jesus disciplines him, wakes him up and offers him grace. This is what happens in Paul's life. And a lot of people today say, well, if Jesus would do that to me, I'd believe in Jesus too. I would, and I think that is so not true. It is so not true. You'd be mad because Jesus beat you up in front of your buddies and made you look stupid and blinded you. You'd be like, why would God do that to me? We are so offended for so much less today. And then he makes you go into a city with, with someone you don't even like, and that guy's going to come and pray for you, and that's how you're going to be healed. You would not want that to happen. And yet everybody does this. Well, if God would just show up and do this, or if God would just show up and do that, well, then I'd believe. That is all self-righteous garbage. That's all that that is. Think, when was the last time you got sick? And you thought, God, I'm so glad I'm sick. What are you trying to teach me through this? When was the last time you had somebody who who's really close to you and you loved? Maybe they got sick or maybe they died. And you say, God, what are you trying to teach me through this? Or your dog ran away or you lost your job and you're like, God, what do you want me to learn? What do we do? No, we're like, God, why? Why do you hate me so? 
Why do you do this to me? We don't respond like Saul does. And think about this. If God had a policy to do what every single person on the planet Earth wanted him to do exactly so they would believe, they still wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. And God would become a slave to human beings. But God does what he does, not for us, but for his glory. That's why he saves his people, for his glory. And here he brings Paul to saving faith by essentially beating him up bad enough to blind him. That's a beating right there, if you don't know that. So what does Paul say? Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 11, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul is not angry at Jesus. Paul is not mad at Jesus. The basic thing about Paul's conversion, how he sees it is, I was a persecutor of the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is Paul's testimony. I was that, but now I am this. What's between the was and the am? Grace. It's right there in the verse. You can read it. I swear. (laughs) Didn't I read it to you? Yes, I did. Okay. He said, this is what I was, this is what I am, by the grace. I was saved by the grace. I was this, and by the grace, I am something else. Now, a couple years ago, I uh, ca- talked to you guys about these three-day stories that are all throughout the Bible. This is like a story God tells over three days. Like in the Old Testament, you have all these different stories. Like in Genesis, Joseph's brothers, they get thrown into prison. On the third day, they are released. In the book of Joshua, the Israelite spies are told by Rahab to hide from their enemies. And on the third day, they'll be safe. When Esther realizes that her people are going to be slaughtered, she goes away to fast and to pray. On the third day, the king receives her favorably. When Abraham is afraid he's going to have to sacrifice his son Isaac, he lifts up his eyes and he sees the sacrifice that will save his son on the third day. In the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. God has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Three-day story. Jesus, death and resurrection, three-day story. Paul is blind for three days. He struggles, he wrestles, he looks over his life, and he's like, where could I have been about all of this stuff. And after three days, he is ready. God sends Ananias, who lays his hand on him and says, Saul, Jesus wants you to receive his spirit. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to be a believer. He lays his hands on him. Paul gets his sight back and he receives Christ. He gets up and he's baptized that day. If you have not been baptized, we are doing baptism September 4th. We'd love to baptize you. Sign up in the back. We'll get a hold of you and we'll figure it all out. But you've got to look at Paul. If this is the pattern, what do you learn? What do you learn in this? Tim Keller says there's three things, and I love this. We're going to talk about those, about the gospel and Paul's conversion. Number one is it's a personal experience. It's a personal experience. Christian, what I mean by that is Christianity changes who you are. It changes who you are. There are a lot of people who hate the idea of the personalness of Christianity. People would think, like to think Christianity more like a big change, like I'm going to go change jobs, or I'm going to change my political views, or I'm going to uh, go get married. But it is so much more than something like that. Some of you are really emotional when it comes to Jesus. You freak a lot of us out. We're like, okay, like Jesus got a hold of your heart or something. We're like, okay. You know. Others of you, you're very stoic. Like, I believe in Jesus, and these are the things, and I've studied really hard, and I'm going to go and live. And it's kind of like this. And you've got these two different sides of it. 
But neither one of those things actually says you're a follower of Jesus. Sometimes those things, being really stoic, really emotional, is a great way to try and keep Jesus away from being personal in your life. I mean, Jesus wants to come in and change who you are in your core. Jesus doesn't call us to follow him like you take up a diet. Like, I'll see if it works for me, but I still got cookies and ice cream in the freezer just in case it doesn't work out. Right? That, that's not how we follow Jesus. See, Paul doesn't say, by the grace of God, I think what I think or I do what I do. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is who I am, which means his very life, his very being has been changed. This means he has changed volitionally and socially and emotionally and cognitively in every single way. Becoming a Christian is meant to be a profoundly personal experience where it changes everything that you are. Because Jesus doesn't show up and say, hey, what are your opinions or, or what are your ethics? He says, what are you? What are you? And everything is supposed to change because we become children of God. That changes all that we are. What is the bottom line of your life? Who are you really? It can be uncomfortably personal. But that's the way the gospel is. The second thing is, it's a powerful experience. There is power in the gospel. Paul is an activist. He just didn't believe Christianity was blasphemous. He was out to stamp it out and eliminate it. And you all probably know activist types. I'm not talking the people that post over Facebook. That's just annoying. We all we understand that, right? But I mean, like, they're out and they're like, doing it. Activists. If you don't know somebody like that, it's probably you. So I'm just <laughs> letting you know. Paul thinks if something has to be done, he's going to go out and he's going to go do it. And not only was he an activist, he had a brilliant intellect. Not a lot of activists today do. If you hear the things they say, they're not that brilliant. But, but I mean, even in the Acts, Paul is standing in front of this guy. His name is Festus. Festus is a king. He's a nobleman. He has known who Paul has been in his life as this rabbinical scholar. And Paul is telling Festus about the gospel of Jesus Christ. How all everything that he has ever learned points to who Jesus is. That all the things that he misunderstood about the scripture is all about Jesus. And in the end, Festus looks at Paul and he says, I can't believe what you're saying about Christianity, Paul. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Because everybody who heard Paul knew he was brilliant. He's an activist, he's a scholar, and he's religious. He is self-confident, he is hard, he is proud, and the gospel of Jesus Christ shows up and knocks him on his butt and changes him. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. He, said, he, doesn't say, he doesn't say the Christian message is about the power of God. He says it is the power of God. It's not just this concept. It's not an argument. It's not an appeal. It is power. Keller says this, The Christian message looks on the outside like a body of information, but it's not. It's not a philosophy. It's not a psychology. It's not a sociology. In it, it has philosophy. It has sociology. It has psychology. But that's not what it is in its essence. The gospel, in its essence, is about the person of Jesus. That's what it's about. And that's where the power comes from. Jesus says in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's why we have this power, to proclaim the gospel, to be these witnesses. The word power is where we get a word dynamite from. Bang! Pow! It's like Batman, but more. If you were to go to some backwards area in the world today, maybe where they still eat their enemies or something. Let's No, uh, imagine, imagine you get in a time machine. We all like sci-fi, so you get in your phone box or your DeLorean, okay? And you go back in time to like the ancient Roman world where they used to throw baby girls out because, you know, they couldn't help economically, so they'd throw them out and, and let them die. You go to those places with today's, you know, philosophy or sociology and all of our modern wisdom. 
all that philosophy and sociology is going to say is violence hurts society. You can't have a civilization of violence, so stop. In the name of the social fabric of our society, stop beating your wife. See if it'll work. It won't work at all. In the name of the social fabric, stop beating your enemies because you, sh- you shouldn't do that. Philosophy and psychology, it can't do that. And yet what you see for 2,000 years is everywhere the gospel goes, it changes people. It changes people. I mean, you go back where in ancient Rome where they would throw out their babies or set them outside so they would die out in the elements. And what happens is the gospel comes in and it so changes the sight that even today we look at taking care of children and orphans as huge. Until Christianity came along, that was never a thought in anybody's mind. Children were worthless. And how do we see them today? The ones that are born anyway. Right? Okay, we need to see the unborn like that too. But and what, what, what happens is we're like, we need to take care of these kids. We've got to take care of these kids. Christianity changed everything. The gospel goes in and it makes a difference. It changes people so that we see the reality of what God is doing. The gospel is a power. And if you follow Jesus and he has changed your life, you know that there is power there because it changed you. It makes you different than you were before. God gets a hold of your heart. You are undone by his goodness. It's not just a body of information. It's power. It's your creator, your maker, remaking you again. The third thing it is, is the gospel is a grace experience. It's a grace experience. Paul uses this great changes in words. He goes, I was to I am by the grace of. And churches love to talk about grace. So what in the world is this grace? What does it mean when we talk about how God's grace has changed our lives? Well, at first and foremost, it means that Jesus was seeking us. And we didn't even know we needed this grace until everything in our life fell apart and Jesus showed us our need for redemption. I mean, think about this. Everyone who isn't a Christian thinks they're a sincere seeker of truth. You've got agnostics and atheists both who say, well, you know, if there was a God or if there's a way to God, I think I'd want to know him. Most people in our world feel like they're pretty good. Like, they're pretty moral. Studies show that we all think we're above the line. 85% of people in our country today think that we are above average. It's okay to operate under that delusion for a little bit, though someone has to be below the line. Like, someone in this room is the dumbest person in this room. One of you, or me, right? I mean, think about it. It's true. You put us all on a graph, someone's at the bottom, okay? It's just how it works. And you can live under that delusion that, oh, I'm really better than everybody else until you come face-to-face with Jesus. Because when you do that, you either have to trust him for who he says he is or you try to diminish him to make him less than he is. When we become followers of Jesus, we've got to come to grips with the fact that we are all below the line in terms of perfection and goodness. You've got to come with the grips that the truth that we all honestly never really wanted God in charge of our lives, that we have done all kinds of stuff, even as Christians to try and keep God from having every little bit of our lives. Oh, well, that thing over there, I'll just live with enough guilt so I don't have to let God have that. I'll just keep doing this. And we live with this because we don't want God to have this penetrating gaze into our lives, so we kind of hold him off. And we all do this under the guise that, hey, I'm pretty good or I'm pretty moral or I'm seeking after the truth. I think in reality, the only people who know they're not sincere are real followers of Jesus, are real Christians. The only people who know they didn't really ever want God to be in charge of their lives and wanted to stay away from him as long as they could are Christians. Because we know the only reason that we follow Jesus is because God came and showed us who he is and what he was and what he was doing. 
You have Paul, rabbinical scholar. He knows the law inside and out. He knows what all the rabbis for the last thousand years have said probably about every verse in the scriptures. He knows it backwards and forwards. He preaches on it. He lectures about it. In Romans 7, 7 through 20, he says this though, I lived apart from the law. What that means is, is I was living away from it. He means that he thought he was good and he thought he was moral and he thought he was a seeker of the truth, but he had completely missed the point of the law as so many people do today. He says, I was living apart from it. I didn't even know what it really meant. There, there's this old movie, I think it came about in the late 80s, early 90s. It's called Hero. Not the Jet Li one, but, but it's got Dustin Hoffman, Rain Man. Yeah, okay, he's got Raymond in it. Uh, Dustin Hoffman's character in the movie, he's a liar, he's a thief, scumbag, just scoundrel, just cheating everybody. And in the middle of the movie, he rescues 55 people out of a burning airplane at the risk of his own life. Then the whole plot of the movie starts to revolve around the fact that nobody believes he did it. Nobody. Why? Because all the people who think they know him the best, his wife, his son, his friends, they all say there's no way that dude could do something like that. There's no way that guy is selfless like that. They thought they knew him, but they didn't. This is how Paul and a lot of people approach the law. They think they know the law inside and out. Paul says, I knew the law inside and out, but I was so wrong. He thought he obeys it totally, but he doesn't. And and he meets Jesus on the road. Jesus knocks him on his butt. Jesus loves him, discipline, restores him, and shows him what the law was meant to point to, the saving grace of Jesus. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Some people read that and they'll say, Oh, Jesus was way more legalistic than other people. This is how Jesus saw the law. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, He's moving us to a place of trusting Him, because there's no way we'll be righteous because of the law. Paul hears something like this and probably thinks, well, you know, I've never murdered anyone who didn't have it coming. So he thinks he's okay. And what does Jesus say? Well, what's murder? Murder is when you set yourself up as better than somebody else in arrogance. And you look at them and you become their judge, jury, and executioner. It's holding these grudges. It's an unforgiving spirit. Paul despised and loathed Christians. And he realizes that's murder. That's murder. How do you feel about people on the opposite side of the political aisle from you? It's like, how could they vote for him or her? It's like, they're just stupid. If they weren't stupid, right? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's murder in your heart. I think think Paul starts thinking through this three days of blindness and looks at everything. Well, if that's murder, well, what about stealing? And what about adultery? And I think he's knocked back by the the realization of all these things. And that, I think, is what happens to anybody who really follows Jesus. At some point, he gets a hold of our hearts and shows us all of these things. And that is the timelessness of Christianity. That's the discipline of God coming into our lives and showing us what the truth really is. Keller tells this story about a minister who, as he got older, he's so upset with church people and dealing with church. You get it, right? Yeah. Dealing with church people all the time, he's like, he's like I'm just done. I, he says, I hate being with people who think they're so much better than everybody else and when they're not. So he decides he's going to go spend time in prisons and homeless shelters. You know what he finds out? He writes this article. He says, to my amazement, the people in prisons and the homeless shelters were just as smug and self-righteous as the people in churches. Go figure, right? Go figure. So he begins to start counseling people with really bad self-images because he says, at least these people hate themselves. They don't look down at other people because they hate themselves. You know what he finds out? 
They are just as self-righteous. He says they gossiped. They felt morally superior to everybody else because everybody else wasn't as messed up or complicated as they were, and they were hypersensitive to everything. And eventually comes the realization of what the Scripture says, is that we are all the same. Everybody thinks we are essentially good people. Everybody, everybody thinks, you know, whether you have a good self-image or a bad self-image, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're Saul, the rabbinical scholar, or Osama bin Laden, we all think, I'm a really good guy, and I'm doing just good things. We all miss the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is Psalm 143, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3, 10, and 11. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one is righteous. And a Christian realizes, I can't be saved or even acceptable through my performance, through my own goodness or any of my efforts. It's really hard to look at Paul and realize what he realized, that there is no difference between you and him. There's no difference between you and a serial killer. You know, it's what the gospel says, because we are all proud. We all think we're better than other people. We all think we're okay. We all find ways to justify ourselves, and we don't see our need for a savior. Well, at least in this part of my life anyway. And we all keep Jesus at bay. But when he really gets a hold of our hearts and we start to change and we see all this, it's really easy to become really depressed. But this is why Jesus doesn't leave us in despair. Just like he tells Paul, you got it, Paul. You see what's going on. Now get up. And he tells us the same thing because our hope is in him. There is a way to be in a relationship with God. There is a way to be acceptable to him. It is because the son of God. Keller writes this, You're so wicked that only the Son of God's death could save you. Only a measure as desperate as that can save you. Until we see that we are dead on our own, the message of grace is never going to transform us the way it's supposed to. And the message of grace is this, Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. Jesus died the death that we all should have died. And when we rest and trust in him instead of our own selves, when we think it's pretty good about ourselves, when we transfer our trust to him instead of ourselves, grace is bestowed upon us. We have acceptance by God. In Paul's life, from this point forward, he gets up, he is baptized because Jesus doesn't leave us in despair. Paul goes on to be used and preach the gospel. He has all this confidence despite all the stuff he did in his past. So how about you? I mean, the gospel doesn't say you don't have garbage in your past. It doesn't say that sometimes it doesn't rear its ugly head and want to come up and try and take over. You could be haunted by your past, what you did to others, what others did to you. Maybe something happened in your marriage or maybe you're, you're divorced and, and you're like, whose fault was it really? You're haunted by this. But do you understand that the grace of God can still step in and clean your life? It blows away Paul, the guy who was murdering Christians. It washes him clean. It is why Paul says the words, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's not an excuse for his sin. That's not an excuse to get over all the things that he does. It's the reality that he lives in because he realized he was self-righteous. And he was living only for himself, even when he thought he was living for God. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the good news of the gospel. I mean, Paul might have been knocked on his butt by Jesus, but Jesus himself was slain to restore Paul. I mean, you might have a lot of stuff in your life, but Jesus died to restore you to relationship to God and to other people. Jesus died so his entire church is restored to righteousness. And that's what we're called to be a part of. Get our eyes off of ourselves and get our eyes on to Jesus. That's a discipline that restores us. It helps us to see who we really are, and it humbles us, and then Jesus restores us into his family. Guys, look, 
yes, you are terrible. <laughs> I am terrible. And that's not to give you a bad self-image or a bad self-esteem. What it's meant to help us understand is that we are all the same. And yet our God comes and steps in to the terribleness of our lives to rescue and redeem and restore us. Our God is better than we could ever imagine. C.S. Lewis writes this thing. He talks about how if you could see yourself in eternity, you you would not recognize yourself because of the grace of God and what he does to restore us and who he turns us into. And so we trust him instead of ourselves. This is the only way, again, our entire world is going to have any reconciliation. When we stop thinking we're better than and we start pointing to Jesus in everything. This is why we talk about communion every single week, where you break that cracker like Jesus' body was broken for us, where you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Why? Because he died. Why? So that our sins can be paid for by his death and that the life of righteousness that he lived can be imparted to us. Our relationship with God can be restored. Our relationship to one another can be restored. What you have to understand is that when Jesus dies for your sins, it's also the things that were committed against other people. And that means that someone doesn't have to get up and crucify themselves for you to walk in a place of forgiveness and reconciliation. It means that you can step into their somebody else's life and start to offer reconciliation. Why? Because Jesus died for their sin too. It brings everything back together. We understand who we are and what he has done, how he has disciplined us just like he has disciplined Paul. And we get to live and walk and do life and do grace. The band's going to come in. As they do, we invite you guys to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons, elders in the back. If you need prayer, they, they would love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life, but especially maybe if you've been in a place where you see yourself as better than everybody else, just scroll back through your last 20 Facebook posts and read, and you'll see. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing if you would take some of the stuff that you post online, and then just if somebody else posted those same things, how you would feel about it. You'd be like, what's wrong with that guy? Oh, wait, I am that guy right? We are all self-righteous, guys. We are. We are. But our God has come to reveal that self-righteousness to us and not leave us in despair, but wake us up so we see it, we are disciplined, and live in the humbleness that he brings and that we are restored to family and grace and truth with him again because our God is good. They'd love to pray with you about that. There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. There's food in the back. Grab something to eat. Meet some other people. Uh, Maybe grab some sermon notes and ask some questions to some people you can connect to in there. Like, uh, you know, where in your life are you self-righteous? Where do you see yourself as being better than other people? And if someone says, I don't, you'd be like, okay, right there. That's a good one. (laughs) See? We all do it. Bunch of losers. No. (laughs) But we do it, and we're honest so we can help one another walk to that. I mean, part of living in community with other believers is to help one another walk to that place where we understand the discipline of God, where we can live and walk in the ways he calls us to, and we can call one another to live that life because our God is good, he has rescued, he has redeemed, and he saves. Let's pray. Father, this morning, teach us to see our own self-righteousness in our own hearts, that you would discipline us like you discipline Paul. Please don't blind us, but, you know, <laughs> discipline us in a way that, that we see who we are and, and what we have done. And then take us to the place where we understand your hope 
and your restoration and your grace so that our hearts and lives can be truly and completely restored. That we would stop thinking that we are your gift to the world because your gift to the world is you. And we would lift up and speak in the goodness of the grace the power of the gospel, the personalness of it, so that we would all be changed, so we'd all know who you are, so we would all live in ways that you, that you are lifted up. We ask that you would bring healing and restoration to our country, to our world, and you would do that by your people taking seriously your call in our lives to set aside our pride and to live and walk in your amazing grace. Teach us to live in these changed lives that lift you up and honor you and understand more fully the discipline when it comes when you bring it. And we'd understand that all that discipline is meant to do is bring us and restore us to your family and relationship to you and to others. And we would live in that grace. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for restoring us. Teach us to always see your grace as amazing as it is. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.